You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today we're, we are reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, and that's found on page 617, um, and the Bible's found in, in the pew. If you do not have a Bible, please take one as our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for, for a person to humble himself? Is, is it to, to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the, the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then... Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and, and uh, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon day. 
and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and, and call the Sabbath a delight and and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. You can find that on page 811 in your pew Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Good to see you. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. Very grateful to serve here as a pastor. By way of orientation, we are in the season of Lent, which I know is familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to many of you. Lent is this season of bright sadness, bright sadness. And if you feel the paradoxical nature of that, I I feel it too. Lent is a season where we journey with Jesus 40 days, approximately five weeks, not counting Sundays, from Ash Wednesday through to Easter Sunday. And it's customary during the season of Lent for the church to give themselves to spiritual disciplines, to things like fasting and silence and solitude and giving and volunteering and serving and, and things like that. And, and really, it's a season of, of self-reflection. It's a season of kind of taking stock of where you are and sort of looking in the mirror and going, okay, self, how are we? Where are we? What needs to change? And that question, what needs to change, or to put it differently, how do I change, that's a question that's a, a live one for, I think, most people in our society. I, the, I've just kind of watched over the years how the self-help industry has kind of gone from like the power of positive thinking to now like the power of habits. 
Have you noticed everybody's talking about habits? I don't know how many habits podcasts out there uh, are, are there right now, but it just seems to have kind of exploded over the past few years. Everybody is talking about habits because everyone, I think, is becoming aware. I think the COVID season just exacerbated this, this sense of, oh, I'm not okay. I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not well right now. And uh, something needs to change. I need to adjust something in my life to sort of help me thrive and flourish. There's a, there's a good version of me out there. And if I can kind of get my habits right, then maybe I can access that, right? Now, here's the thing. Earlier in this service, at the very top of page seven, Olson led us in this prayer and it went like this. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. So there goes the self-help industry. <laughs> in one sentence, it's gone, just like that. <laughs> so the reality is we, we know we need to change, but for those of us who have lived enough years and have been through enough cycles of realizing I need to change, I will try to change, I have failed to change, I am discouraged, right? You do that enough times and you kind of just feel like shrugging going, okay, I guess this is who I am. I guess I'm not changing. But the reality is that the gospel calls us to change and yet the gospel does not call us to change ourselves, but rather to allow us to be changed by God. And there's a participatory element of that, meaning we participate with God in our own change. The power doesn't come from us. The power comes from God, but we have a role to play. And one of the things that the church gives itself to during the season of Lent is this reality, that we are not primarily changed through our intellect, but rather through our embodied practice. The greatest tool you and I have for change is our bodies. And we are used to the idea of using our minds to lead our bodies. That feels normal. But did you know that you can use your body to lead your mind? Now, over the past a week and a half, we've talked about the practice of remembering death and the practice of silence and solitude, remembering that your body is going to die and then getting your body alone and quiet. Now, today, we're going to talk about the practice of fasting. It's a big topic. Before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Fasting. What do you think about fasting? When I say the word fasting, are you thinking about Gandhi on a hunger strike as a form of political protest? Are you thinking about intermittent fasting to lose weight? Are you thinking about something that only really serious religious people do, like people that wear collars? Those are the kind of people that fast, right? What do you think about when you think about fasting? I think fasting is one of the most feared spiritual disciplines of them all. Like, Last week, we talked about silence and solitude. And we talked together about how we all have this ambivalence towards silence and solitude. Our lives are busy and noisy and hurried, and so we're drawn to it. Oh, wouldn't it be good to get alone and quiet and still? Ah, oh, I long for that. But also, it's a little scary. What am I going to find there? Am I okay being alone with myself? And we feel kind of of both minds about it. Fasting, not like that at all. Fasting is all on this side. We're just like... No one says, I'm drawn to fasting, right? I am not drawn to it. I presume that you are not either. If you are, come talk to me. You're very strange. Um, fasting, by the way, is not an exclusively Christian discipline. All major religions of the world recognize the merits of fasting. Zoroaster practiced fasting, as did Confucius and the yogis of India, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, 
Hippocrates, the father of modern, modern medicine, all believed and practiced fasting. Today, I think you are more likely to encounter the concept of fasting outside the church than you are inside the church. Isn't that interesting? Intermittent fasting, I think especially, is kind of really hot right now. A means of controlling your weight loss through carefully regimented times of eating and times of fasting. And and just to kind of be clear, when we talk about fasting, there's a tendency to expand the category to kind of include, include taking a break from anything. So we think about social media fasting or fasting during the season of Lent from alcohol or from dessert. That's kind of what our family does. Um, And those are all good and and right and true. Um, In fact, uh, this is just kind of an aside, but during the season of Lent, one of the things that my wife and I practice is sort of choosing things for each other to give up during the season of Lent. Because once you're married long enough, you sort of get to know each other and you sort of figure out, you know... I think I know how you need to change, right? Um, and it's very, it's very playful. But uh, a couple years ago, I've told the story like eight times. A couple years ago, uh, my wife, Rachel, said, hey, during Lent, what if you fasted from being late? Because I am, those of you who know me will know this is a real problem. I'm a cron optimist. I can leave my house at five o'clock and get to a five o'clock meeting 15 minutes away. That's possible, right? Cron optimist. I'm optimistic about time. Uh, and so about five, six years ago, I fasted from being late during the season of Lent, which meant I had to try to be early and it was hard for me. And I, what it kind of excavated and unearthed in me was the, was the realization, oh, I have a problem. This is, I'm actually worse at this than I thought I was right this year during Lent. I am fasting from passive aggressive sighing. You can just extrapolate all of my personality problems from from that little sentence. Um, Okay, for our purposes today, though, we're actually going to be pretty focused. Fasting as not eating food. We're going to limit the conversation just to that. Fasting from food. A friend who went on a diet recently, and I asked her about her diet, how's it going? And she said, yeah, my diet is called, don't put the food in your mouth. It's a great title for a diet, right? That's fasting. Don't put the food in your mouth. Now, fasting, you got to understand this. Fasting is not a sort of like obscure peripheral topic in the Bible. Fasting comes up in the Bible more than baptism. Did you know that? Now, I'm not saying it's more important than baptism, but it does come up more often. Moses, David, Elijah, Ezra, Esther, Jesus, Paul, Barnabas, the list could have been a lot longer. Those are just some of the big ones. Every major leader of God's people practices fasting. Now, in order to understand the place that fasting holds within the larger biblical story, you got to understand this. In the very beginning in creation, human beings are made for food and food is made for humans. It's a good thing. It's the creational goodness of food. God puts his first humans in the garden. He gives them food to eat. They are to enjoy it. No fasting in the very beginning. But then there's the fall into sin where humans grasp for food and power and control that was not given. Instead of receiving it, they grabbed for it. And therefore, on the other side of the fall into sin, we live in this season of biblical life, which we are in right now, where we practice fasting as a means of resisting control. 
resisting that grab for power, resisting taking what was not given. And the future we look forward to is this new creation where there's an eternal feast of our appetite for God and our appetite for the things of this world are no longer in competition with each other. I long for that day. One day, those two appetites will be in harmony. And that's the future we look forward to. So human beings are not made or designed for fasting. And we don't have a future of fasting to look forward to. But fasting is a temporary spiritual discipline in this life where we resist the fall into sin by disciplining our bodies. Now, we're going to go to Isaiah 58 and Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at a few other passages of scripture as well. And one of the things that you need to understand about the two scriptures that were read this morning, Isaiah 58 and Matthew 6, is they are both warnings about fasting. They both lean towards the negative side of things, warnings about fasting. And as we explore these, we're going to talk about the assumption of fasting and the potential of fasting, the assumption and the potential. Let's start with the assumption. Fasting is assumed for God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the things that Isaiah 58 and Matthew 6 have in common is the assumption that God's people are already fasting and already have the regular practice of fasting. Isaiah 58 doesn't need to command fasting. It just starts with the way your fasting is not going well. (laughs) You're not doing it the right way. It's not producing the right fruit in you. And Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins by assuming his followers will practice fasting. He starts out this little section with, when you fast. Now, as I did some commentary research this week, what I encountered were a few authors, they were in the minority, but there were a few of them, who made this case that because Jesus begins with, when you fast, it's therefore not a command. He's not commanding you to fast. He's just saying, if you happen to do this, here's kind of the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. The problem with that kind of thinking for a follower of Jesus is that you're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, context matters, and so many of the other things that Jesus says during the Sermon on the Mount begin with the phrase, when you pray, when you give, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a follower of Jesus that thinks prayer is optional. You can kind of pray. Now, a lot of us live as if prayer is optional, including me, but we'd be hard-pressed to say that that's what Jesus meant. No, Jesus assumes that his followers will be praying and giving and fasting. These are normal practices for any disciple in the first century. And then in the assumption, he gives instruction. Now, if you think to yourself, hang on, I see that little move you pulled right there. I don't buy that. I still don't think fasting is required because remember, Jesus' disciples didn't fast when they were with him. In fact, Jesus and his disciples were criticized in the first century for specifically for not fasting. So doesn't that mean that we're free today? We don't have to fast, right? Here's how Jesus answers that critique. Matthew chapter nine, verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom was with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. In other words, Jesus is saying to his first century critics, my disciples aren't fasting right now because we're together. But as soon as I depart, and he's foreshadowing his ascension into the heavenly realm, then my followers will fast. And any follower of Jesus today would be included in that. Fasting is therefore not optional. Fasting is not for the spiritually elite. Fasting is a basic practice for all caps, all Christians. 
uh, not, you don't have to go very far back in church history to encounter this being the normal expectation for anybody who's a part of any church, really of any denomination. John Wesley, the Anglican minister who went on to start the Methodist movement, famously would not ordain anybody who did not already fast every Wednesday and Friday. Two full days a week, every week, all the time. That was just the normal baseline expectation for anybody who was going to step into a position of church leadership. Now, that's the assumption, but kind of within that assumption, we need to understand what is being assumed about what fasting is. What is fasting? We need a working definition. Richard Foster, author of a wonderful book called The Celebration of Discipline, which I commend to you all, has this definition. Fasting is, quote, the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. The voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Christian fasting, therefore, is always focused on God. That was, that's what differentiates Christian fasting from other kinds of fasting. God is the purpose of the fast. Now, why, why should you fast? What's the motivation kind of baked into the assumption here? Fasting, listen, we got to get this clear. Fasting is a means of grace, not a means of law which is so different from the way most of us just naturally tend to approach, approach the whole concept of fasting. We tend to approach fasting as in, okay, new law, I gotta obey, or new law, I refuse to obey, right? But you're engaging fasting as if it were a law to you. That is actually not the way fasting is understood in the Bible. It is a means of grace. And by means of grace, what, what we mean by that is a way of accessing and experiencing God's grace. God's grace is real, but I don't always feel it. I don't always experience it. Fasting is a means of experiencing God's grace, which is always on offer to me, but I just don't access it very often. Fasting is therefore a means of being satisfied in God, taking all of my hunger in my body and offering it to God. Fasting, as more than one theologian has said, fasting increases your appetite for God. You might have heard the phrase somewhere along the way, hunger is the best spice or hunger is the best sauce. The idea being like, you can mess around in the kitchen all you want, but what really makes the food taste good is a really hungry person, right? In the same way, the same could be said of our relationship with God. You want to really experience the goodness of God? Practice something like fasting, where you put your body in a state of hunger, where you become aware of your appetite, and then the goodness of God, you can taste it just a little bit more. Fasting is a means of grace. Fasting can therefore be a breakthrough in the spiritual realm that you can't really get at any other way. In other words, there are some things in the Christian life that you can only learn through fasting. You can't read them in a book. You can't get them from a podcast. You can't get them from a sermon. Not even a sermon about fasting. You can only access it through practice. Some things you can only learn through fasting. If fasting is not a regular part of your week or your month, then there is spiritual wisdom to which you just do not have access. You just don't have it. Now, let's summarize here. Fasting is assumed. Fasting is the voluntary denial of food for intense spiritual activity. Fasting is a means of grace. Now, we have to be careful here because fasting is powerful. And anything that is powerful is also dangerous. It's like a scalpel. 
It can be used for good surgery. It can also be used to wound, right? So fasting is powerful and therefore it's dangerous. It can be used for good or fasting can be used for ill. So now let's talk about the potential and let's begin with the negative potential of fasting. First, the invitation to fast bears within it the potential to resist, right? I just don't want to. I just don't want to. So if you invite me to fast, it kind of triggers in me this resistance. Cornelius Plantiga describes it this way. Self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude and self-discipline is usually the friend and generator of gratitude. That's why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believed a person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then here's the summary statement. They spoil our appetite for God. So there's the potential to resist. And there are all sorts of ways that I try to get out of fasting, okay? That you might have your own list. Here's how I try to get out of fasting. One, I say it would be legalistic, right? I don't want to, don't, don't give me some new rule to follow. I'm free in Jesus, okay? So it's legalistic, therefore no fasting. Or if you persuade me that it's not legalistic, then I'd say, well, see, I know my own heart. I'd be fasting for the wrong reasons. I'd have bad motives. I'd, I'd be doing it to lose weight or I'd be doing it to feel spiritually superior to other people. So because of my wrong motives, I won't fast. Or if I can get over that, then I would say, well, fasting would interfere with my work and my work is very important. It serves other people. And so in order to love other people well, I shouldn't fast, right? Because then it would mess with the work I do. Or, you know, if you're a bit younger and you're an athlete, you could say, well, fasting would interfere with my performance on the field or on the court, right? Or I might say, well, fasting will interfere with my mood. I'll be grumpy all day long because I'm hungry. And then I won't be a patient spouse or roommate or parent. And so there are all sorts of ways that I try to sort of wiggle out of the invitation to fast. So the first, invi- the first thing is there's just potential to resist. Second, there's potential to fail. Ugh. Failing at a fast is a violation of your conscience. And it's a violation of your conscience that wasn't necessary. Because you're choosing it. You're knowingly doing something that you determined ahead of time would be wrong to do. No one makes you fast. You choose to do it on your own. And then if you choose to do it and then break it, you have vi- you've set up a little construct where you violated your own conscience. And whenever you violate your own conscience, you weaken your conscience. It works like this. And, and any of you who have ever struggled with pornography would know this, right? You, you sort of know ahead of time that viewing these images would be wrong. And then you do it, oh, and you feel so guilty. But then you do it again, and you feel pretty guilty. And then you do it again, and you feel mostly guilty. And by the 487th time, you no longer feel guilty, right? Because you have deadened your conscience. You try to fast. You break your fast. You feel guilty. You try to fast again, you break your fast, you feel a little guilty, and on and on and on, until the, the, the sort of habitual rhythm of fasting and not following through erodes your own conscience. There's an Indian folk tale about this called The Monkeys Go Fasting. You ready? I'm not calling you a monkey, I'm just reading you a story. A group of monkeys decided to go on a fast one day. Before we begin, said the chief monkey, I think we should keep the food with which we will break our fast ready at hand. The monkeys nodded their heads in agreement, and the youngsters went in search of food. They returned with bunches of delicious-looking bananas. 
I think each of us should keep our share of the bananas with us before we begin to fast so that we don't spend time distributing the bananas after we break our fast. You can imagine how long that would take and how hungry we would all be by then, said the chief's wife. The monkeys liked the idea and they collected their share of the bananas. Why don't we peel one banana and keep it ready to eat, said one of the youngsters. Yes, let's do that, shouted a fat monkey in agreement. Looking at the bananas was just making him hungry. All right, said the monkey chief. We shall peel the bananas, but under no conditions shall we eat them. So the monkeys peeled their bananas and carefully kept them ready for eating in the evening. Can I keep the banana in my mouth? I promise I will not eat it until evening. Please, the little monkey assured his father. Why don't we all put one banana in our mouth? That way we can chew it immediately after we break the fast, said his father, who had only agreed to go on the fast because his wife had not given him a choice. As long as we don't eat it, it should be fine, he added. So the monkeys put the bananas in their mouths, and one by one they eyed each other uncomfortably as they began to fast. Sometimes we don't start fasting because we know we're going to fail. It's just too hard, right? The invitation to fast bears within the potential for failure. Another potential would be the potential for hypocrisy. This is the one that Isaiah 58 and Matthew 6 really go after, but in different ways. The author of Isaiah 58 is describing the tension between private religion and public service. The private Christian who fasts in order to get close to God. I just want to be close with God. I want to be intimate with God. I want to experience God's presence. All good things. But the kind of person who ignores everything that God has to say about loving neighbors, seeking justice, serving the common good, elevating the oppressed. Fasting, you know, is the great equalizer. Whether you're rich or poor, of different racial backgrounds, a man or a woman, educated or unschooled, fasting levels everybody out. You're different. They're all those, all those mixes are different when they're working and feasting and doing other stuff. Then the differences, differences in their lives pop out. But when you're fasting, you're all the same. You're just there. You're a human body and you're hungry, no matter how much money you have. Fasting, therefore, should be a practice that puts you in touch with what you have in common with your fellow humans. How can you think that you're better or more important than anybody else when you're fasting? That's part of what Isaiah 58 is going after. How can you fast and expect intimacy with God when you're also oppressing other people, when you're not loving your neighbor, when you're not seeking justice, not seeking the common good? You have clearly missed the point of fasting says the prophet. Matthew chapter six goes after hypocrisy from a different angle. Jesus is going after the tension between virtue, true virtue, and virtue signaling, right? And every individual tribe has their own versions of what constitutes virtue signaling. Fasting is not gonna like win you points at work with your coworkers, but it might win you points with these people, right? Inside the church. So you might summarize Jesus as sort of something along the rules of fight club. The first rule about fasting is you don't talk about fasting, right? There's also the potential for discouragement. This is the one that so many of us who actually try this encounter, which is I fasted and nothing happened. I didn't feel close to God. Where was the payoff? It's kind of like practicing the piano one time and then feeling bummed that you didn't play Mozart very well right? You're like, I practiced that one time. And any seasoned musician would say, that's not how it works. 
You must give yourself to the craft before you experience the payoff. Spiritual disciplines are cumulative in their effect. They build upon each other. Um, if you, I know this won't apply to everybody, but if you're married, it's a little bit like the weekly date. Like a weekly date one time is not going to fix your marriage. If a, if a couple comes in and sits with me for marriage counseling and says, ah, we're having such a hard time getting along, you know, we're struggling, we're just not feeling the love anymore. And I might ask something along the lines of, do you have a weekly time together, a weekly coffee together, a weekly date night, something like that. And if they said no, then I might prescribe that, try it. And if they were to come back the next week and say, we tried it, we had dinner together, we're still mad at each other. You go, yeah, I know, that's, that's not how it works. You have to practice this over and over and over again. Sometimes you'll have dates that are soaringly romantic where you just feel the love and it's great. Other times you just sit there and you don't have much to talk about. It's okay. It's in the practice, in the repetition. Fasting is, 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 works the same way. And then finally, the final potential is the potential for control. Fasting sort of beca- can become has the potential to become a means of control. First as self-control, usually motivated by vanity or maybe a a desire for power. Fasting as a means of weight loss or not wanting to fast because you're worried it's gonna affect your mood or your work. You see, we all use food as a means of control. The thing you worry will be impacted by fasting or the thing you hope will be impacted by fasting will reveal to you what you think the most important thing is. If you won't fast because it will impact your work, what does that tell you about your work and your relationship to your work? If you want to fast so it will impact your weight and your body image, what does that tell you about your relationship to your weight and your body image? We all use food as a means of control. And so fasting will reveal to you what you value the most. Now, the final form of control may very well be the most dangerous one, which is fasting as a means of controlling God. A hunger strike to gain power, to attract attention to a cause. God being the government. I'm going to get God's attention by going on a hunger strike. Or fasting to get God on my side. Fasting to make God answer my prayer. I have something I want. I prayed for it. God said no, or at least I felt like he said no because I didn't get a, didn't get a yes. And so I'm going to fast and see if I can get God to do what I want. Fasting is a means of God control. Now that last one very very well may be the, the most dangerous one because it is the opposite of what fasting is meant to be. Fasting is not a means of control, even though we're most likely to think of it as that. You're like, oh, in order to fast, I need a lot of self-control. Sure, But that's not really how fasting works. Fasting is surrendering control. The heart of Christian fasting is giving up control. Surrendering your body to God. Surrendering your appetite to God. Fasting, you might say, is praying with your body. Fasting is a physical embodied prayer. Fasting is a way of kneeling before God all day long. Prostrating yourself before God all day long. And those are not power positions. Those are surrender positions, right? In the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus has this remarkable encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and also with his disciples. And that encounter is really two sides of the same coin. It's showing the same thing from two different angles. With the Samaritan woman at the well, 
Jesus has this interaction with her where she's, they're talking about thirst and getting water. And Jesus says to her, if you really knew, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. You'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, how do I get that? Please tell me more. Later, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, they're talking about food. And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know anything about. And the disciples, true to form, are totally clueless. And they're like, did someone give him a sandwich when nobody was looking? No, Jesus is describing for both of these groups the reality that there is deep human appetite for God and that he is the one who is there to satisfy their appetite. He's the living water. He's the food. They just don't see it yet. This is the mystery of being nourished by the Spirit of God. So through the gospel, through receiving Jesus, fasting has the potential for encountering Jesus in this moment of intimate surrender. And as you begin to surrender to Jesus and experience the care and affection and grace and love that he has for you, then you learn in that moment what it truly means to love another person, to care for their bodies as Jesus sustains your body in your fast. This is why fasting in the good news of the gospel can cultivate a heart for justice and the common good. When you're fully satisfied in God, you don't need to use or manipulate or oppress anybody to make life more satisfying for you. You're already satisfied. This is why personal, private fasting is connected with the good of your neighbor, with love of neighbor. And this is, I think, the deepest, most kind of like truest form of the gospel expressed in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is not justice instead of fasting. That would be a very shallow reading. You read Isaiah 58 and you're like, look, I don't need to fast. I just need to get out there and change the world, right? No, no, it's fasting that leads to justice. It's deep inner devotion to God that leads to deep outer devotion to the good of others. Fasting is a gospel formation practice. It enables you, as you take it up, to become a missional presence to other people. You might say, Fasting is gospel formation for missional presence. And as you take up the gospel practices of fasting, here's the thing, and this is where we're going to conclude. We're going to end by just talking about how to get started. Where do you begin if you are ready to take this up? Well, through the good news of the gospel, you need to walk before you run. To use a musical illustration, you need to practice your scales before you attempt Beethoven's fifth. Be patient The fruit of fasting takes a long time to grow and even longer to harvest. You might think of the spiritual encouragement of intimacy with Jesus as something like an orange blossom. An orange blossom that begins to bud when you start fasting, when you stop eating. And that takes months to develop. And if you pick it too early, if you harvest too early, it will be hard and green and sour. An orange that isn't ripe yet is not good to eat. It's actually a pretty unpleasant experience. But if you let it ripen, then it becomes a sweet nectar bursting with flavor, right? So here's here's a way to begin. Before you embark on your first fast, if you've never practiced this before, the recommendation would be don't just say, I'll try it once. Try it for like once a week for six weeks or eight weeks. Plan on it taking a long time. Saying I'll fast once to see how it goes is sort of like saying I'll plant a garden one day and see what, see what kind of fruit or vegetables I get. 
you will not get any, right? So plan for it being a long time. And if you're new to this, I would recommend doing this with someone else. And y'all, I really don't think you're, you're breaking Jesus's advice of not talking about fasting. It is one thing to make your fast public so that everybody can kind of think well of you. It's quite a different thing to get one or two or three close friends and say, this is a new practice. Let's do it together. Let's fast on the same day. Let's debrief afterwards. Let's pray for each other as we're fasting. Let's hold each other accountable as we're doing this. And let's forgive each other if any one of us fails. Now, after a month or two of this, you might be ready to step it up. When you first begin to fast, you might still be drinking tea and coffee, maybe some juice to kind of help you begin to learn a new practice. But over time, you're ready to step it up. Now you're dropping those things. You're dropping the tea and coffee. You're just doing water. Maybe you're extending the hours. Maybe you're fasting two times a week, maybe on Wednesdays and Fridays. Those would be the historic days. Maybe you're fasting for longer hours. And as you do so, it will get a little bit harder at first. Richard Foster puts it this way. You will, quote, probably feel some hunger pains or discomfort before the time is up. Come on. Thanks, Richard. (laughs) You will probably probably feel some hunger pains? (laughs) Yeah. But here's, actually, here's, here's what he goes on to say. This is not real hunger. Your stomach has been trained by years of conditioning to give signals of hunger at certain hours of the day. In many ways, Your stomach is like a spoiled child, and spoiled children do not need indulgence. They need discipline. Martin Luther, the reformer, puts it a different way. The flesh, old-fashioned language, the flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully. You must not give in to that grumbling. In other words, it might be helpful, not in the long run, but just for a moment, to disassociate yourself from your stomach and to be able to have a conversation with your stomach and go, stop it. I'm putting you in timeout. Stop fussing, stop complaining. What you need is discipline, not more cake. Now, private personal fasting is only one form of fasting. There are other forms described in scripture. We're not gonna go through all of them, but I will name one other one, which is a corporate fast. Fasting together with the people of God. Historically, in the Old Testament, there was one day set aside in a calendar year for the whole nation of Israel to fast together. Do you know what day that was? It's the day of atonement, the day when the sins, not just of individual Israelites, but of the whole people together were atoned for in sacrifice. As followers of Jesus today, people whose roots stretch all the way back into the Old Testament, what is the day of atonement for the people of God, for the church today? It's Good Friday of Holy Week. When we remember together the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross, atoning for not just our sins individually, but for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, here's an invitation for all of us together. Let us all fast together on Good Friday this year, from sunup to sundown. It's an invitation. It's not a new law. It's a means of grace, not a new rule to follow. And no one will know if you don't do it. And nobody will shame you if you opt out. But there's an invitation for us to practice this together. Now, there's a complementary discipline that goes hand in hand with this. And that is this table. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the complementary discipline to fasting. And here's why. 
This is such a small meal. If you've been around Redeemer for any length of time, you've heard me or other people stand up right here and talk about feasting and being satisfied in the Lord Jesus. And then you get invited to the table and a tiny little crumb is placed into your hand. And there surely must be at least one of you who has thought in that moment, like, that's it? (laughs) This is the feast? (laughs) So small, so pathetic. Now, the message of the Eucharist is the same as the message of fasting. Feed on Jesus himself. And here's a physical practice to help you do it. When you practice fasting, you are practicing feasting on Jesus himself. When you come to the table, no matter how big or small that little piece of bread is, you are being invited to feast on Jesus himself. So friends, how do you change? Can't change yourself, but you can fast. And when you fast through the gospel, you may be brought into an encounter with Jesus and discover in him the true nourishment and satisfaction for which you have always been longing. And the more often you practice this kind of gospel fasting, the less hold all the other appetites in your life will have on you. And your need to be in control will weaken and lessen because you'll be using your body to guide your mind and your heart because your body is the greatest tool you have to help you change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the practice of fasting. Would you help us to receive this gift and to practice it well so that we might be changed by you? Oh, Lord, would you give us the grace and the strength to practice this this week? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.